Good afternoon. So, my name is Charles, for those who don't know me. I've been attending trails for about a year and a half. Recently, me and my wife, we just uh, became members at this church. And today, I was given the huge responsibility and also privilege to be part of a series that's called Miracles. Series in which we are expositionally going through the Gospel of John and pointing out the most prominent and highlighted miracles performed by our Lord, approached by the Apostle. One very important aspect of this Gospel is that the author himself gives to us his very intent in which he wrote this Gospel. We can use this intent as glasses to read through every single portion of it. Uh, this makes the job of the, every preacher way less laborious, since we do not have to play this role of lawyers trying to convince you of uh, what is the intent of the author on this, uh, on this gospel. And I have it here when John talks through it. Uh, right here. Yeah. So John talks through it on, at, by the end of his, uh, his gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Therefore, before approaching this text, we must know that every single miracle Jesus performed are one, just a little scope of what Jesus actually done, and two, that every single miracle reported in this gospel are supposed are, have the main goal to display that Jesus is the Messiah, the only one that's capable of saving us from the terrible wrath to come, and thus granting us with life in His name. And that's not only John's hope, but mine as well today. That's my ultimate goal this afternoon, that through the exposition of this portion, you who do not believe may believe, and you who believe may rejoice and praise Him, for what you can learn about his character and about his love for us. So, the miracle which we are approaching today is the first miracle performed by our Lord, the worldwide famous miracle of turning water into wine. This miracle carries a great weight since it is the first performed by our Lord. And uh, if you've been walking with Jesus for more than a couple of days, you'll notice by his providential work, on your personal life that he does not think by accident. Nothing happens by chance to our lives, and the same way of thinking should be applied to the Lord's ministry. Everything has a providential purpose, and this miracle being the first one is not different, and this miracle being performed at a wedding is not different, and the turning of water into wine is not different either. He had a purpose for it to be the first one, he had a purpose for it to happen in a wedding, and had a purpose for it to be performed the way it was. So we see what makes it distinct, and what makes it important. So today I would like to call your attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And while you are opening up your Bible, I would like to let you know that what I want for today is to provide to you with some general and also more specific approaches to this really important portion of Scripture. We'll be briefly going through smaller themes on this portion, and then finally, 
reach its main theme concerning the miracle itself. Pointing out what it says about Jesus' authority, the kingdom of heaven, and his character. So let's read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars up with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out of it, out of, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became, become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So right after reading this first part of this chapter, we are actually called to have a bit of context, because it says, on the third day. And you should, when you look at this, you should ask yourself, the third day from what? It's been three days since what? So to understand that, we have to actually check the context, check what was going on previous to this moment. So at this point in the gospel history, the word had become flesh and was dwelling among them. God had incarnated in the person of Jesus, as Aaron pointed out last week. He had also been baptized by John the Baptist. He had faced Satan's most severe temptation that no man has ever faced in the wilderness. And just previous to this wedding, technically three days, Jesus, um, Jesus had gathered five men. Andrew, an unknown apostle, which we actually don't know his, who he was. Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, who would later be grouped with the other seven to become the famous 12 apostles of Christ. In regards to these five men that Jesus called to himself, it is important to note that they had some intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, that Jesus was the Messiah. As we can clearly see, actually a bit before on John 1 verse 41, we see that Andrew, after being recruited by Christ, he goes to Simon Peter, his brother, and says, We have found the Messiah. Which gives us a clue that they actually understood that Jesus was the Messiah. But I believe that that was an intellectual understanding. but was not a heartfelt one. However, because we see that God did not authenticate Jesus with power yet, with miracles yet. And we realize that at the end of this miracle, after seeing his glory manifested, they finally believed. Therefore, there was some sort of intellectual understanding, but not a heartfelt one. 
And it was to Nathanael just previous to this moment that Jesus said that he would see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So three days after Jesus called his disciples, three days after he said those things to Nathanael, he's with them and his mother at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. One really interesting fact of this is that every single gospel writer left out this event but John. And there is a great chance that John was not even there. So how come he heard of this event on our Lord's, uh, on, of our Lord's life? And I think it's easy to assume that since he was the one responsible to take care of Jesus' mom after Jesus' death, she told it all to him. This story was important to her, and she shared with him. She shared with him the things that impacted her life, and this is one of the things that she shared with him. Remarkably, this is the only event during Jesus' ministry that she actually interacts with her Lord besides the moment of his crucifixion. Other moments she's briefly mentioned, but never actually have an interaction with her Lord. For some reason, this story was important to her, important to John, and important to the Holy Spirit to report it. But why would this event be important to Mary? Well, I believe that this event is important to Mary because it characterized Mary's transition from mother to believer. Here is when she realized that the one she once had authority over as a mother would have authority over her as her savior. It is interesting that Jesus' rebuke to his mom is not as sharp as some may say, but it's also not as soft as some of our Catholic friends would claim. We see by an attentive reading of our text that Jesus rebukes his mom for demanding him to solve a problem. She uses from her motherhood's authority and brings to our Lord's attention a problem. And here is when curiosity starts. He calls her woman. Surely he's not, he was not being rude, since we see later on, as we mentioned before, when Jesus is um, giving, before the crucifixion, when he's giving his, his mother to John, he actually addresses her and says, Woman, here uh, is your son. John, here is your mother. Which he was actually comforting Mary at that time. And here is not different. Jesus was gently rebuking Mary by saying that he does not need anyone to inform him what is needed to be done. He is omniscient. He is God. He knows everything. He, knew he knows what is in man's heart. He surely knew what was going on in this party. He surely knew what was in Mary's heart as well. He did not need things to be brought up to his attention. But besides that, the most important, he never done and will never do things based on what man wants aside of his father's will. What does this have to do with me? He says. Yeah. What does this have to do with me? He says. This is literally translated from the Greek as what to me and to you. Or what do you and I have in common? Please understand that here, Jesus is not simply being rude. Again, I want to emphasize that. 
He's actually establishing how Mary has to come to him. She has no claims on him. He's bound to the will of the Father. One author says Mary had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she also she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even his family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. He's not primarily the son of Mary anymore, but the son of man, who was to bring the realities of heaven to man. And there's an important lesson on this here for us. How, think of this, how difficult would that, would, have that, would that have been for Mary to learn that nothing manipulates what our Lord does. Not even his family, not even his mom. He is bound to the Father's will since him and the Father are one. How many times have you and I, though, come before God and demanded things from Him? How many times have we believed because we are good Christians or because we have achieved some sort of man-made spiritual level, we can demand things from Him? His first miracle declares, though, His utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation, even from His earthly family. But how shall we come before Jesus? Shouldn't we ask things from Him? Should we, how, how should we come before Him? And I believe we should come before Him as Mary later on. When she says, whatever He tells you, do it. We must have to understand that when we come before Jesus, when we come before God, we do not come presuming, but accepting whatever His will for our lives is. Whatever He does, I accept, we may say. Your will be done. Isn't that what we pray? Therefore, whenever we come before Christ, we must remove our sandals because the ground in which we stand is holy. We must bow down to His ways rather than demand things from Him. We must bow down and be reverent to Him. We must say with confidence, whatever He does, I accept. I do not change His will, but I am changed by it. We also have to realize that He's not only, he's not only pointing out the way one has to come for Him in supplications but also the way one has to come to Him for salvation. We see here that Mary comes to Jesus as mother and is reproached, but she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. She is to come to Him like every single person, acknowledging Him as the Lamb of God. Therefore, this verse should rebuke any sort of Mary reverence that our Catholic friends believe. And I pray, if this is one of the things we struggle, you may see that God, that there is no partiality with God. No one is saved apart from Christ. Doesn't matter how many achievements you may have. Since we see that the great example, this great example here, that even the blessed among all women 
had Christ and not her motherhood as her Savior. So what is left for you and me? There's a theologian that says, you got to say, you can't say amen, amen now, you got to say ouch. And I think that's what all of us have to say now, ouch, and be changed by this. Well, while this is serious stuff, we got to get back in track. Here we identify that Mary requests Jesus to act on regards of the lack of wine. And we strangely see we strangely see that Jesus that Jesus has in mind like, like that Jesus has his mission in mind, his final, his final mission in mind when he says, My hour has not yet come. It's interesting that just before that is interesting that just before the performance of his first sign is when we see this phrase. My hour has not yet come. A phrase that would be common later on, which has connections to um, his death and resurrection. And this is the very first time he uses, and this is the very first miracle he's going to perform. And he has always connection to his late suffering and resurrection, which would um, become the last miracle he performed. This miracle, therefore, has the last miracle in mind. It points to what is going to be accomplished by Jesus's, by the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is bringing a spiritual future and everlasting level to Mary's mundane, present, temporary request. Jesus' immediate response is connected to what was taught, what was taught by Him at the Lord's Supper, that the representation of the wine was His blood, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And we also see it in different passages through the prophets, the same idea. Amos, for instance, says that the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall overflow with it. Therefore, we see here that by saying, my hour has not yet come, Jesus is pointing to a time, to the time that would be characterized by the utter suffering, which would result in the utter, utter joy of his people. And he emphasizes that that time is not yet come. So he's bringing a spiritual understanding to Mary's mundane request. So while following along with our text, we also realize that Jesus requests the servants to fill up six stone jars with water up to the brim, which indicates that there was no room left. Nothing but a miracle could have turned that quantity of water into wine. We see that the servants bring it to the presence of the master of the banquet, who was probably the chief steward, and this person tastes from it, and it becomes wine. It's important to note that Jesus wanted this to be a personal manifestation of his glory. Since no one knew of what happened other than the servants, Mary, and his five disciples. The chief steward then addresses the bridegroom and says, Everyone tastes, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
but you have kept the good wine unto now. So you might have the same initial response that I had when I went through this initial reading. I went through all of this while I was studying it, and I was encouraged, but I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty cool, but um, what's, what's the point of it? And I must confess that I was having a hard time trying to understand what this passage is actually saying. It is interesting that at first glance, when I was studying these verses, it seemed to me there was not much to be extracted from it. It seemed to me a really superfluous miracle. Surely powerful, but superfluous in substance. I must confess that at first sight, I did not see much of an applicable or relatable content. But it's not by scratching the surface that one finds gold, is it? But it's by digging deep. There is a famous quote that says that the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to wait in it, but it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in it. And it seems to me that by exposing and being exposed to this text during this week, I was finally able to dive a bit deeper on this bottomless Gospel. And my aspire is that you, as you follow along with me, through the application of it, may also share of the blessings that filled my soul with joy and assurance this week. So to understand what this passage talks about, we must to understand what John means by miracle. So the word for miracle used by John in his gospel comes from the Greek that means to give a supernatural sign. But a supernatural sign about what? Well, I will advocate that it actually it brings a supernatural sign. It signifies three, three main characteristics. It signifies or points to the performer's authority, or in our case, Christ's authority. It signifies or indicates the blessings in the kingdom. It gives us glimpses of heaven. And lastly, it signifies or points to our Lord's character. It points it straight to his heart. So while approaching the first one, Christ's authority, his supremacy, I think I would like to start with the general sense of it. The sign in regards to the performer. This is a sign that God gives to the performer of it. It normally gives the performer authority, giving authenticity to one's ministry. It normally shows that God is behind the performer, giving them authority and thus making them worthy to be heard. A classic example of this is seen through Moses' life. Moses is the classic of example of someone being given power, being given signs to empower his ministry. If you have some grasp of uh, the Old Testament, if you don't, you could turn to Exodus 3 and 4 and read that quickly. But throughout that passage, you will see that God shows up to Moses in the burning bush. And he challenges Moses saying, uh, again, that time the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt. So you must know that as well. But then God shows up in the burning bush before Moses and says, I want you, I want you, I want to appoint you to be a leader and 
take that, those people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses looks to himself and say, um, okay, that's cool. You showed up in the burning bush. I understand all of that, but they're not going to believe me. You know, like I'm going to tell them that God showed up to me in the burning bush and want them to move out of Egypt. They're not going to believe me. And what God does, God empowers Moses with three initial signs. He gives him three initial signs that will point, that will back up the things that he's telling them to do. That will back up what he was, um, what he was supposed to be doing. So God gives him these three initial signs. Providing to him authority that he's being backed up by him. And later on, we see the same thing happening likewise. We see when uh, Moses before the Pharaoh, God also backed him up with signs. Actually curses, 10 different curses, which would prove to Pharaoh that God is behind Moses' claims. It was actually during Jesus' ministry, now turning to Jesus, that we see that Jesus' healing ministry in Matthew 9, that uh, when questioned about forgiving the sins of a paralytic man, he answers, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Raise, rise, Pick up your bed and go home. Thus Jesus himself used his miraculous healing of the paralytic man as proof that he had authority to forgive sins. Authority in which is reserved to God alone. Being therefore one of many of the signs that pointed to his divine nature as God. And at this first sign, the sign of turning water into wine. We notice that God is authenticating His chosen Messiah for a supernatural task. He's indicating His action behind Christ. With Christ's miracle, realize a similar pattern to Moses' authenticity. The major difference, however, lays and is seen on the immense amount of miracles performed by our Lord. In which should be an indication of the greatness of his ministry compared to Moses. In fact, she, in fact, John himself notes that all the books in the world would not be able to contain all that Jesus has done. God is not only, therefore, displaying Jesus' authority as just another prophet or just another leader, but as the Son of God, with superiority above all the other leaders that God has ever provided with signs. As the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is superior than Moses and than all the prophets. He is the radiance of the glory of God. We notice that this text presents the display of God's glory, the creator in action. It is on verse 10 that Christ revealed his glory through this miracle. His authority is greater than Moses's. While Moses would only wait for God's action, Jesus would act by fiat, by the power of his word, displaying his authority as God himself. While Moses one day was 
Jesus was always beside the Father. While Moses covered his face with a mask to hide that God's glory was fading away, Jesus always displayed his glory that shines for eternity. While Moses' first sign before Pharaoh was turning water into wine, which was a curse, we see Jesus' first sign being the turning of water into wine, which is a blessing. And at the end, as it was expected, this miracle was proof enough for the five apostles. Since they saw and believed, this miracle points to the authority that Christ has over creation, the authority that only God has, thus pointing straight to the only conceivable conclusion that He is God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, the primary aim of this text is to provide to believers and unbelievers with the proof that He is God. He is the Messiah. He is the one that is capable, the only one that is capable of supplying with every spiritual and physical needs we may have. He has authority on heaven and on earth. Therefore, we should bow to His commands and be subjected to His ways. And now we turn to the second, the second characteristic. Blessings in the kingdom of heaven. Glimpses of heaven. So what does this, what does this miracle teach us about the blessings in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus' miracles don't only point to His authority and authenticate His divine um, claims, but they also provide us with glimpses of what believers are going to experience for eternity at the presence of God in the kingdom of heaven. These signs are supposed to show us the blessings that are waiting in heaven for the believer. These signs include centrally the deliverance from spiritual death, deliverance from sin, deliverance from guilt, from the power of the kingdom of Satan. These signs climatically point to the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, which for us means the permanent deliverance from sin and condemnation. And in kingdom sense, it guarantees that we will have our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies, complete. We will in the future be perfectly delivered from every single bodily sickness and illness, and from every, and even from death itself. The miracle that Jesus worked were foretastes of this deliverance, this future deliverance. So how does this communicate with our text? Well, to understand that, we must have a bit of ancient Jewish wedding understanding. So a Christian historian says that at, a Jewish, at the Jewish culture of the time, marriages were preceded by a betrothal which was a more serious matter than what an engagement is with us. It seemed the solemn pledging, it meant the solemn pledging of the couple, each to the other, and was so binding that to break it, divorce proceedings, proceedings were necessary. The betrothal would likely last a whole year, and it, and it was a moment in which the bride would learn how to become a wife, while the husband would prepare the house and the wedding ceremony which would be a ceremonial proof that he had the means to provide for his wife. 
At the conclusion of the betrothal period, the marriage would take place. The bridegroom would gather his friends and proceed to the bride's parents' house, bringing her and her family to his house where the party would normally take place. During the party, he was responsible to prove to the, fam to the bride's family that he was indeed capable to provide for their daughter on a week-long wedding ceremony. Any problem on their regards would be, at best, an intense embarrassment. And, one of the most of the and on the most severe of the cases, it would even result on a betrothal break and a lawsuit as well. This was serious business. Therefore, at the performance of this miracle, we see that Jesus was potentially freeing the bridegroom from, the shame, from shame, but also potentially freeing from the separation from his beloved bride. Jesus provided the couple with the best of wines. Here we learn two things, one in regards to our earthly marriage and the other in regards to our future marriage in the kingdom of heaven. In regards to our earthly marriage, we see that Jesus is the one that keeps the real joy within it. It says that aside for him, aside besides him, aside from him, our marriages are tasteless disasters. He is the one who fills our marriages up to the brim with joy and helps us to properly replicate the future union of the church with him. And in regards to the kingdom, we are taught and encouraged that the good wine is safe for last. The best of the wine is still to come. This then, this miracle then, should give us a glimpse of joy we will have in the future kingdom when the church is united with Him. This miracle is reinforcing and reminding us that the wine we are drinking now is not the best. There is something way better awaiting for us in the kingdom of heaven. Our best life is in the presence of the bridegroom, drinking of the wine of joy. We have learned this from our previous, actually from our previous um, series, Exiles in the book of 1 John. And this miracle is teaching us again that this best wine is still awaiting for us. And this is actually interesting because this is contrary to what Satan teaches. Because Satan, Satan gives. Because Satan gives the best first, the pleasures of sin. And keeps the worst for last, the weights of sin. And God, however, acts in a very different manner. He brings His people into the wilderness before He brings them to the promised inheritance. First the cross, then the crown. The best wine is yet to be. As Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the just is a shining light that shines more and more into the perfect day. And it's interesting, the Holy Spirit, another interesting fact of this is that the Holy Spirit didn't let John name the bridegroom or the bride. And perhaps because one of the ways we should interpret this is as Christ and me. This is a personal miracle that signals and gives us a taste of the everlasting wine that one day we will drink in the presence of the bridegroom. This text is to encourage us to wait as an obedient bride waits for her groom. 
knowing that, as he states in Matthew 26, 29, he is not drinking of the fruit of the vine until he brings you home. Therefore, that cup is left untouched until we drink of this good wine with him in the end of the ages. What a wonderful future we have. And the third point, my favorite one, that points us straight to our Lord's heart. This miracle communicates to us and points to us Jesus' character. Because, I mean, Christ, he did not only point to his authority as the Messiah. Christ's miracles not only pointed to the blessings that we will have possession in the kingdom of heaven either, but it goes beyond that. These miracles also signify and point to his attributes as our loving God. We see in the Gospels that he was moved in many, many times he was moved by compassion for those in need. And one episode in Matthew is recorded that he went through the cities and villages, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. On another occasion, Jesus saw the son of a widow being carried for burial. He had compassion on the woman and raised her son to life. As Jesus' miracles are also pointing straight to his heart. They state that he cares for us. He's not an indifferent God. Or Lord, I mean, you could analyze this this way. Your Lord could have performed miracles in so many different ways. He could have chose to fly right in front of everyone. He could have chose to control thunderbolts like Zeus. He could have chose to be invisible like Muhammad. All these miracles would surely display his authority. However, that was not of our Lord's fashion. Who unlikely the false gods wanted to show not only his power but his heart. He opened his heart for us through those miracles. And while contemplating this, uh, different ideas of our, of our Lord performing different miracles, we could also contemplate them on a biblical sense too. Because our Lord could have performed this miracle previous to this. I mean, it was weeks before this wedding that our Lord was in the wilderness, placed in which he stayed for 40 days with no food and no water in the presence of Satan. He could have requested his mighty angels to come and deliver him from that place, but he didn't. He could have turned the stones that were around him into bread, but he didn't. He wanted the first of the signs to reflect his selfless heart. Please know that this first miracle displayed his selfless love for us. Our Lord had been few days before this event in the wilderness and it was up to, this, up to his power, it was up to his commands to command those stones to become bread and would be it. The beginning of the signs would start right there, a sign of his utter necessity 
Our sermon would be completely different. It would be a sign of his own utter necessity. But such a beginning would not be like the life course he had. It would be a wide apart from the conclusion of his life when he says, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Oh, my friends, contemplate this today and look to your Lord and rejoice. Look at your Lord and love Him more and more today. Spurgeon, looking at this text, he says, He did not make bread for Himself, which is out of His necessity, but made wine for others, which is out of luxury. He does not only give what is necessary, but overflows. He gives not only that which is merely needful for survival, but also that is which is needful for our utter joy. And that's the heart of our Lord, being exposed before our eyes, wide open on this first miracle performed at Cana. Ask yourself this question now. Am I confident that I have a spot saved for me in eternity? Am I confident that the best of wines is still to come? Is there a spot saved for me in eternity? I hope there is a spot for you. I really hope. I really hope I will see you at his table. But please, I plead with you, do not leave it up to chance. Contemplate this miracle and fall in love with the greatness of his love, of his care for his sheep. And if you're not sure, I hope that today, today you turn to him and you say, I want that good wine, Jesus. I want a good wine, Jesus. Turn to him and ask that. And trust me, he will not turn you away. So ask today. Come before him like Mary. Not demanding, but pleading on your knees to give you a new heart. Ask him a spot at his table. So then you can drink freely from the wine that awaits for us in eternity. Let's pray.